0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton
0: School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome to Launchpad. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and product design. I'm super lucky today to be joined by Frank Greek, who's the co-founder and CEO at Revel. Frank, thanks for joining us. Carl, thanks for having me. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, Tell us what Revel is all about. Give us the elevator pitch.
1: Sure. So, Revel's an integrated e-mobility platform. Right now, we have four products um, in New York City specifically, and we're also in other markets, including SF, DC, and Miami. Uh, We started with our electric moped product, um, and recently, in 2021, we also launched an e-bike subscription product, uh, our EV fast charging product, including the largest universal fast charging station in Brooklyn that went live two weeks ago. Um, and we'll be launching later this month our electric uh,
0: rideshare product right here in New York City as well. Wow, it's a lot of stuff. So let's let's get it, let's make it real specific so we can get a get a, a, a closer sense of the product and service. Why don't we start where you started? So tell us a little bit more about the Moped product and and what that's all about.
1: Sure. So the Moped product we started as a small pilot back in the summer of twenty eighteen. Uh, with 68 electric mopeds to be exact in, in North Brooklyn here. The For those that aren't that familiar with Rebel, everything is done through the app. Um, and it's called, let's just say, a free-floating service, meaning there's no stations, there's no docks, the mopeds are in the streets, you know where they are through GPS and the app itself. Uh, and you're able to unlock, start the moped right through the app and hop on and, and you're off. Uh, So sort of perfect E to B transportation in cities that we operate in.
0: Yeah, so um, uh, let's just talk about those early early days. I would have thought that to try a service like that, essentially a dockless um, moped sharing service, you would need more than 18 vehicles, because you've got to give the customer a reasonable experience, which probably requires reasonable density. So how'd you think about that pilot and what you really needed to to put in place in order to really be able to get some valuable insights?
1: Yeah, you're spot on, Carl. We had to think about the right geographic zone uh, with the fleet size that we had and the amount of funding that we were able to get together and scrap together. So, for us, um, it was 68 vehicles. I think you might have said 18. 68 vehicles. um, When we thought about that geographically on a map, that ended up sort of working out to around four or five square miles. Um, And we launched that in a neighborhood that we thought just needed better connectivity. So, back in 2018, that was Bushwick, Williamsburg, Greenpoint. We thought it's that perfect four or five square miles, connect three neighborhoods together with, as you said yourself, that limited fleet of vehicles that you do have. Yeah. So and was it enough? Was 68 enough? It was enough. Obviously, I think we definitely needed more. But at least it proved concept. It proved initial demand. It proved that Americans want to use this vehicle. um, And then that led to $4 million in seed funding later that fall, um, which allowed us to really expand the fleet.
0: Yeah, but actually that's gonna be my next next question. I would guess that to build an app and field 68 electric mopeds would be a hard thing to do out of your out of your pocket. So uh, but your your significant, the significant first real funding, seed funding, four million dollars didn't come till after you did the pilot. So how did you come up with capital to to try it?
1: Yeah, no, great question. Um, I'm a first-time founder. So is my co-founder Paul Suey. We had never raised money before to launch a company, so it was a little bit of trial by by fire. Um, we had the idea in January 2018, and just to give folks a bit of a timeline here, idea in January 2018. We had mopeds in the streets of Brooklyn live July of 2018. So mm-hmm. from idea to hardware in the streets was six months, and along that journey, Carl, we ended up raising a little over a million dollars. From fifty-seven different investors. Oh boy, that's painful. Tell so us just so <laughs> imagine we have fifty-seven yeses. For those that have raised money, no, you get a lot more nos than yeses. That was a lot of conversations. It was a lot of hustle. Wow, and so that's an
0: that's an average check size of under twenty thousand dollars as well. So that boy, that's that's some that's some tough sledding. I'll tell you that we had that's-
1: we
0: we had checks as low as two thousand. Yeah.
1: Um our largest check I remember towards the end of the round was 150,000. We thought yeah. we, had, you know, uh we thought we hit gold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, and check size is all in between.
0: Did you use a, a platform like WeFunder or one of those or did you just go out and beat the bushes?
1: It started with friends and family at a base level. Mm-hmm. Literally folks I went to college with, people I grew up with my siblings, same thing on my co founder side. And then you start to get introduced to people within the New York investment community. Hey, I know this person. Why don't you talk to them? They might be interested. And I think something we did really smart and well, and I recommend this to any founder when you're fundraising for the first time, even if it's a no, make that person introduce you to two or three other people.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: That's fine. This might not be for you, but who else in your network would find this interesting? Yeah. And just make sure you constantly are feeding that funnel of new introductions. Wow. Now, you know it's interesting
0: because you said you had the idea in January 2018. But the question is what was the idea? because I, I spent about half my time in San Francisco. You have a competitor and I'll tell you I'll tell you just as an aside, a funny story about your competitor out there. They're red and scoot is in the word in the name. but because they use these peel and peel off decals, People vandalize them, the name, and so I never know what the actual name is because various letters have been peeled off. <laughs> so it's E Scoot or something. You know who I'm talking about. Somebody out there was doing something uh, pretty similar. So, so what was the idea? I mean, uh, electric, el- uh, shared electric mopeds was something a lot of people have tried. So, what what was the idea as you articulated it?
1: The idea, if you go back to the base level, Carl was just. Every place I've been in this world for business or pleasure, Asia, Europe, South America, doesn't matter. Mopeds are a dominant form of transportation, Mm -hmm. if not the dominant form factor in a lot of Mm things. And we just sort of had this light bulb moment when I spent Christmas 2017 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. That's a summer down there. And some sort of light bulb moment went off of mopeds are everywhere in that city. It's a moped motorcycle town. And yeah. I just thought, why is this vehicle type not in cities like New York, where everyone's driving around an SUV, completely congested, can't park, can't go anywhere. And I just couldn't get that idea out of my head when I came back to New York in January 2018. And I mm-hmm. just, um, ended up getting my co-founder on board, ended up just doing all the research that we could. Um, and six months later, we were live in New York City.
0: Obviously, a lot happened in that six months. Yeah. Well, I, I want to go back to this. This uh, question of what you knew, because uh, I, I actually, we started before before we started running the tape. I said I'd been a long time um, personal transportation nut, and literally on my desk here in my shop, it, our viewers can't see, our listeners can't see it because I'm showing it to you on Zoom, is a suspension part from an electric moped that I launched in 2002, uh, and so uh, 20 years ago. We, my, my brother and i tried to to launch an electric moped okay. which eventually failed it turns out um so i've been following the space for a long time a lot of people globally have tried this basic idea so how much were you were you ignorant ignorance is sometimes, ignorance is sometimes the best uh approach because you don't know what you you know you, you don't know how hard it is but hey how much research did you do on what other people had tried before you went out and said hey we want to go do this
1: Ignorance is
0: bliss, right? It's really, uh,
1: you know, the amount of work that has gone into this company for my co-founder and I over the last three and a half years, I think if if we were sitting here today, we would have said, why did we do this?
0: Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. think
1: if you ask any founder of a, of a fast growing startup, they, they would say something similar. Um, you just don't realize the amount of work that you're getting into. Um, I think as we, you know, you have the light bulb idea you just know this is a vehicle type that needs to be in cities that are dense and have high population like in New York. And you you just run with it and you just yeah. knock down barriers and walls again in front of you. Cause there's going to be many, whether it's an electric moped startup or something else, it doesn't matter. There's going to be barriers, mm-hmm. going to be walls. You just have to break through them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question. Though. No, it's
0: good. It's, it, it, I, I, it, it It's a great answer. I mean, I think it's I think to some extent entrepreneurs have to be a little bit delusional because it's always harder than you think it is. And if you're if you're a pessimist, you'll never do it. I mean, a
1: a great example, Carl, is when we were raising our series A, every VC investor was saying, and also the seed round was saying Scoot has been here in San Francisco since 2013. Oh, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. They've been here since 2013. It's seven years later, eight years later. Why have they not expanded? Clearly, this business doesn't work. So, you have to think about though, timing is everything in business sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right? And timing for us is very much on our side. I give Scoot a ton of credit. When they launched in 2013, they literally invented f- free floating two wheeled electric mobility. They were really the first ones to do it before anybody, but they were too early. And if I had yeah. launched an electric moped company in 2013, I probably would have sort of floundered a bit like they did as well. It's just yeah. timing. Battery yeah. technology isn't there. Yeah. Hardware of the moped isn't there. The smartphone um, just consumers understand. Oh, I got it. I I've used Bird. I've used Lime. I've used Uber. I get it now. This is 2019, 2020. I know how to use this product. You don't need to educate me. So many things are just in our favor, from battery technology to hardware to just consumer education to regulators understanding this is something that's good for cities. Mm-hmm. If I had walked into a regulator's office in DC or Miami in 2015, 2016, talking about electric mopeds, it would looked to me like I had three heads between right. so 2019 and 2020.
0: It's how do we get you here? How do we work together? How do we partner? So yeah. Again, all about timing. Yeah. And Then the other question, again, more more inside baseball, I, I was one of the first angels to invest in what became Jump, an investor in social bicycles. And I think we sold that business to Uber around 2018, or it was a little later that that same year, I think. Um, The the, the world had changed for sure, because in part because bike share had taken off globally. Uh, Was that also part of the timing, that this whole idea of personal mobility and bike share had taken off globally and people were pretty interested in the space?
1: I think tailwinds like that always help, especially from the investment side, Uh, just what's going on in the macro environment. I, I will say, though, we had this idea and we started to execute on this idea. I never even knew what a kick scooter was, ah. a scooter meaning sort of the you know, bird in line vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, we went into this thinking mopeds are just this makes sense for cities. It's a regulated vehicle or a license plate. It stays off sidewalks. This just makes a ton of sense. This is why yeah. it works with every other city around the world. Um, and as we were developing this business, as we were moving forward from idea to actually launch six months later, everything on the kick scooter side was just happening, but it didn't influence what we were doing because it wasn't even a thought going into the business. It was kind of yeah. interesting how that
0: developed. Yeah. So let's underscore the the <laughs> some of the key lessons here because I think they're really good. One is, yeah, do your homework, but to a certain extent, ignorance is bliss. So I think that was a key key lesson. Um, and the second key lesson is the one about the timing of the enabling technologies or the tailwinds, as you put them, that something that didn't work in 2013 could really work in 2018. And so I, you know, when students say, oh, somebody already tried that, I say, hey, that, that doesn't mean much. That just means somebody ran a public experiment that you can learn from. Uh, conditions can change and things that didn't work at one point in time could work, could work later. So those are great, great lessons.
1: And I think we're taking those same exact lessons, Carl, as to what we're doing now in 2021. Launching EV charging infrastructure at scale, tying it to 100% ride share. If we were launching this side of the business in 2018, 2019, it would not have worked. Cars were not getting 325 miles of range at that time. Fast chargers weren't, you know, 20 dollars to $30,000, they were $100,000. Yeah, so it's the same exact principle that we're bringing to the four wheeled sector now as we attack that market in the dense urban cores of the cities we operate in. Timing is everything, and mm-hmm. timing right now is very much in our favor as we go into electric vehicle infrastructure and the four wheel side of the business.
0: Yeah, all right. So I'm I'm gonna get right into what I think is the hard question for you. I'm sure I'm not the first to ask it to you, but when I look at your website and I look at what you're doing, you're doing a lot of stuff and it's all pretty different stuff in a lot of ways. Um, And so, and clearly where you are now, is not where you started. You really did start with a single focus on moped, you know, Vespa style electric scooters. So I guess there's two questions. One is how did you arrive at the current portfolio of activity and don't you think that's it's too diffuse? It's too much stuff.
1: So I would say there's a guiding strategic principle in everything mm-hmm. that we're doing that is core to why Revel is different from any other company right now in the marketplace. Right? That is, I think to understand this, we just have to take a step back for a second, Carl. If you look at the mobility sector, there's a massive mega trend that is a tailwind behind us. And that is everything on wheels is going electric over the next 10 years that is just fact it's happening right the other macro trend that's happening is the grid especially in major cities is heading towards 100% renewable and is inherently much more unstable so before you even have this massive new center of demand from electric vehicles coming to power grids in cities that we operate in power grids are already failing in 2021 in the first inning of this it's already happening right so you have these two massive megatrends behind us on mobility and on the energy side And these things can advance in silos, right? It just can't. There needs to be communication between the two. That communication is exactly where Rebel's placing ourselves, right in the middle of that convergence that's happening in big, dense urban markets, right, on mobility and energy. And the way we solve that convergence, the way we make these silos speak to each other, the way we make mobility and the power grid talk and actually advance forward is by bringing an integrated mobility and energy platform to this entire problem. Right? So what I mean by that is it starts with infrastructure. You have to build infrastructure in order to make mobility and the grid speak to each other and communicate and not move forward in silos. And That's exactly what we're doing. We did on the moped side of the business and now we're doing the four wheel side of the business. You then need to run fleet operations and an entire technology layer on top of that infrastructure right? to bring the demand and utilization to that infrastructure. And you need to be a consumer brand. So my point is if you're just a consumer brand matching supply and demand or if you're just an EV fleet operator getting squeezed from all sides or if you're just an electric vehicle charging company and there's a bunch of them out there, all you're doing is being another company talking about 2030 and 2040. You can't actually be a first mover. You can't actually lead cities to a zero carbon future. You can't actually electrify our neighborhoods. It's not happening. You're just going to talk on Instagram about 2030. So the way Revel is going about this is again this integrated strategy you have to vertically integrate across these entire value chains, or else it's not happening. So we've done that in the moped side of things. We are bringing that now to the four-wheel side of things and attacking rides here in EV infrastructure. Um, so I think it's just important to kind of take a step back and understand that full picture
0: so you understand where Revel is strategically going. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, professor at the Wharton School, and I'm speaking with Frank. Rieg, who's co-founder and CEO at Rebel. All right, Frank, that, that, that sounds great. Um, and I guess I believe it at the level of when you're talking about charging Teslas, you know, a big network of Tesla, because there's a lot of juice involved in that. Uh, give me an example of how integration is really important on the moped side or the electric bike side where you're talking about much smaller amounts of, of electricity.
1: Yeah, it's smaller amounts, but still large scale, Carl. So it actually was quite difficult in New York City, even with two-wheeled small Mm -hmm. vehicles, meaning mopeds, to find warehouses and industrial sites to run our operations out of. I see. Have the required connected power. Literally, the sites were you know in single digits across New York City that can actually do this, right? And that's mopeds. On the moped side of things too, we already work with Con Ed on a demand response program. That's how much power we're pulling into our warehouse just to charge a fleet of over 3,000 mopeds in New York City. So even on mopeds, lightweight two-wheeled vehicles, we're already setting up other revenue streams with folks like Con Edison, the utility here in New York City on a demand response program. So imagine our first charging site that went live two weeks ago, largest universal fast charging station in North America right here in bed Brooklyn, that is seven megawatts of power. It's essentially a small virtual power plant think of it like that. So you think about as we move forward, yes, we have 25 fast charging plugs at that site. We're going to be putting a large scale utility battery there in the future. We're going to be thinking about vehicle to grid in the future. We're already working with Con-Ed on a demand response program there, right? And that's only one infrastructure site. Imagine as we go from one to 10
0: to 50, right? All right, that, that's actually, uh, I, 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 I buy it. You know, I had a different model in my head. I thought you were doing what the kick scooter manufacturers do or operators do, which is they do distributed charging, essentially. So they allow that, well, not all of them, but some of them, at least that was the original idea, was sort of allow it to happen in a distributed way with third parties. What you do in terms of operations, you bring everything together, do it at scale, uh, which I, yeah, even, I, I totally get 3,000 uh, mopeds, uh, that is a lot of juice. Yeah.
1: All right. It's, so- it's interesting to, maybe you make sense just to explain a little more. If you look at the charging companies that are out there within the fast charging space, pure play charging companies, a bunch of them have spacked recently, right? If you look at their investor decks, it's actually quite interesting because they all say the same story and explain the same story, which is, hey, investors, don't look at the next six to eight years we know we lose a ton of money mm-hmm. but ev adoption percentage and rates of the public will be high enough in 2028 and 2030 where by then we will be able to drive enough utilization to our highly capital intensive infrastructure and charging equipment to start to break even and be profitable literally 2028 2030 it's right near in investor decks right we solved that problem because i don't need to wait till 2028 2030 i'm bringing demand and utilization to the infrastructure that we build in the form of ride share Mm-hmm. And rideshare charges overnight on the overnight hours when you don't need your entire fleet out in the urban core in streets of New York or D.C. or SF. And then guess what? All these sites are also publicly available to drive utilization during the day as well. So day one, when Rebel opens up our infrastructure and we open up our charging depots, I'm not talking about 2028 and 2030. I'm talking about profitability day one. So It's a totally different model, and it allows us to be a first mover and lock in all of the top infrastructure within the urban core of major cities. That's exactly what we're executing on.
0: Yeah, that's a cool story. I like the story, but let me ask you a, I guess I got a bunch of following questions. The first one is, how much of this vision was in your head uh, uh, January 2018 when you launched the mopeds, the 68 mopeds?
1: I would love to tell you and sit here and say I had this massive master plan in January of 2018 when I had this idea. Carl, in January 2018, I had the idea of let me bring electric mopeds to cities like New York. This is a vehicle type that works. This is a great idea. Let me go execute on it. That was the idea. Yeah. And then once you start spending literally 100% of your life engrossed in electric mobility and what cities need in the future of mobility and energy in cities these things come about very quickly. So I would say initial thought is no, but then once you throw yourself and just put full attention into a certain topic, like I have the last three and a half years, it's not rocket science.
0: Yeah, well, that's also, let's just underscore that point as well. And that point is the the grand vision is often not in place when you launch. You have some little wedge that you're passionate about uh, but in any kind of market where there's a lot of disequilibrium, you quickly become one of the experts uh, within a couple of years and you're actually in a position to make a, a better move, a better uh, a better second move uh, as, as you go forward. I think that's a great insight as well. The second question, I agree with you that at some point in the last 18 months, we all woke up and realized, yeah, it's all going electric. It's going to be electric. It's probably not going to be hydrogen. It's probably going to be electric. Um, it's probably not going to be hybrids. It's electric. And there's some magic point, probably around 300 miles of range where it's just good enough for, for almost everybody. But right now, you look at the customers for Rideshare, I would say the vast majority of customers for Rideshare, what do they care about? That the vehicle shows up, that it's reliable, it gets to from A to B, and then it doesn't cost too much. And you're now offering something slightly different, all that, but it's an electric uh, vehicle. And so I guess the question is, is electric dominant in your application? That is, is it just better on all dimensions? Or if you were just to look at reliability, cost, and reliability and cost, you'd be better off running a fleet of Corollas, IC-powered Corollas. Or in fact, uh, is it dominant? Is it just better to be running Model 3s or whatever you're running uh, in this in this application?
1: It absolutely makes sense. In 2021, if you have a fleet vehicle doing 50 plus thousand miles a year on that vehicle, for it to be an electric vehicle, there's no question. Total cost of ownership is a slam when you drive mileage that high on one vehicle per year. There's no question. The only barrier for why cities like New York and many other cities in the U.S. and around the world, why they're not electric now is two things. A, there's no infrastructure, right? There is no electric vehicle infrastructure in a city like New York to charge. It just does not exist. And since New Yorkers and rideshare drivers do not have garages or places to charge, it's not happening, right? And then the other piece is, you really start to see the impact of total cost of ownership when you're able to operate as a company like us and finance a thousand vehicles at once. As opposed to an individual gig worker in the South Bronx who's thinking, do I spend $27,000 on a Camry or $47,000 on, on, a, on a Tesla? Uh, that person's going to choose a $27,000 Toyota Corolla or Toyota Camry. So it's just a, it's not that it's not cheaper and better to be running electric vehicles today in 2021.
0: There are other barriers in the system that is stopping that. Got it. Yeah, super interesting. I'm speaking with Frank Reeg, who's co-founder and CEO at Rebel. You made a really compelling argument that fleet vehicles that are going to operate, say, a couple hundred thousand, you know, say hundred thousand miles a year, uh, in an application like Rideshare, they just should be electric as long as the infrastructure is in place. How did you then go about selecting the fleet? Because it, it seems to me that you're sort of like an airline. You like you make a commitment to a fleet. You want to standardize on that. And so tell us a little bit about that process and about how you thought about the commitments you're making and what it locks you into in the future.
1: In 2021, when you look at the market of electric vehicles in the United States, there is a clear leader in 2021. It is Tesla. I think, Carl, as we move forward into 2022 and 2023, and I mean, we have two large automotives already on our cap table, Hyundai and Toyota, uh-huh. and we're already talking to them as well as others about future orders as we scale the fleet. There's going to be many more options even starting next year. Yeah. Because every single OEM is marching towards an electric future.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: every single OEM is pouring billions of dollars in capital to make that happen. But in 2021 right now, Tesla is the leader. We're using Tesla. That doesn't mean we're going to scale forever with Tesla.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I, another thing that's curious to me is that in this application, especially given that you own the vehicles, that you would take a vehicle like a Tesla Model 3 and operate it, in, yeah, or, or that the only vehicle really available is what is a consumer product. I mean, somebody once told me that something like 15% of the cost of a car is the paint and body to make it look beautiful. And that's something you actually don't even want in your vehicles. It seems like, to me, what you want is a rubberized you know, exterior or something that's just super, super low maintenance. If I were designing a vehicle to, to be fleet operated for rideshare, it would probably look like a London taxi with rubber bumpers. Uh, it wouldn't look like a beautiful Model 3. What do you think about that? Is there going to emerge a whole category of hardware that's designed just for fleet operators? I think even when you think about ICE vehicles,
1: ICE meaning internal combustion engine vehicles, the entire design of a car today is based around the engine in the front. An electric vehicle, you don't need that design. So I think there's going to be in the, I wouldn't say near term, but probably medium term, there's going to be a lot of cutting edge design changes in what an electric vehicle can actually be and look like. And I think it's going to be quite shocking to some people. I think in terms of designing vehicles specifically for ride share, I think there's a ton that both Rebel can do in the future, as well as a lot of companies are working on this right now. And there's all different ideas and design architectures that I've seen. Um, it'll be interesting to see where that plays out, though.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I, I've i always been puzzled by the fact that the auto industry is as vertically integrated as, as it is. I mean, uh, virtually all of the, the existing legacy manufacturers make their own engines, for example. And that just seems crazy to me. I mean, if you look at virtually every other industry, there would be an engine manufacturer, the Intel inside of engines that would just do it better than anybody else, and auto companies wouldn't have to worry about it. Um, Are you seeing that kind of disintegration in electric vehicles? Because if the industry were more like the computer industry, you would have a bunch of creative people out there assembling interesting configurations from highly reliable, low-cost components provided by that supply base.
1: Well, I think in the analogy you just mentioned, the new engine is the battery. Yeah. Right. So that is, and when I talk about Tesla leading in 2021, that's where they're leading right now. Yeah. Battery technology in range and performance, the ability. There are electric vehicles on the market right now that can't even accept our 75 KW charger. The battery technology isn't there. It can only go up to 50 KW. So just in terms of, you know, Battery technology, what that means for the future, I think, you know, any OEM that isn't aligning themselves
0: to have the best battery technology moving forward is is clearly behind here. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing from your perspective, although I should probably pose this as a question, do you feel you can be agnostic uh, on the hardware question, or will you need to be more active an active participant in the development of hardware? I
1: think right now we can be pretty agnostic to hardware. Yeah. I think there are plenty of OEMs out there that do an incredible job and are going to continue to innovate. And honestly, we can pair them against each other for competition and pricing. And I don't think it's something we need to go into anytime in the short to medium term.
0: Yeah. All right. You don't need to nudge me very hard to get to go deep on this stuff because I love it. But I, I, just to, while I got you on this topic, what we haven't heard quite so much about self-driving vehicles, autonomous vehicles in the last year or so, as we did say three, four years ago. What, what's your sense of, of what's happening in that space and, whether, and what the timeframe is on which rebel vehicles will not have operators in them?
1: So the autonomous question is an interesting one um, because there is, when is it likely to happen? And then when will regulators be comfortable with it in big, dense urban markets, which I think are two very different questions. Mm -hmm. Um, So even maybe once the technology is there, um, it may be several more years before it's actually in cities like New York and San Francisco and London at scale because of the regulatory environment. I would say here at Revel, the way we think about the autonomous future is, Carl, I don't care who wins the autonomous future. I don't care yeah. if it's Waymo, Argo.ai, some company that doesn't even exist yet, and I don't care if it happens in 2026 or 2036. It's it's almost irrelevant. All I know is that Rebel is going to be ready for those providers with the picks and shovels of the autonomous future, meaning we're building all of the EV infrastructure necessary to run fleets in the Earth, we're running fleet operations, we're going to own that consumer brand. We're going to have all the permitting and regulatory contacts to be able to make it happen. Whoever wins the software race, we're ready for them. Yeah, on um, whatever well, timeline that happens.
0: Yeah, I I, I hear you. Um, but but I also know I was just doing a little research for today's show that you've taken a pretty strong position on a different model for drivers, and 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 really differentiate yourself from. From a vulnerability that Uber and Lyft have around their self-employed uh, self-employment uh, model, so why don't you say a little bit more about that and and whether that well just say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Sure.
1: uh So for listeners on on this call, since we started as a pilot with those sixty electric mopeds in Brooklyn in twenty eighteen, every single person that works at Revel is an employee of Revel. So every battery swapper for our mopeds, every customer support agent if you call in with an issue, every mechanic. They are an employee. They literally have the same access to 401k and healthcare benefits that I do as CEO. Same exact stuff, right? We're extending that as we go into rideshare to our drivers as well. Um, for me, I don't know. It's just a philosophical. I I just don't believe in the gay economy. I don't really understand it. I think this quote-unquote third way is just kind of toxic. I think what happened with Prop 22 in California is pretty disgusting. Um, it's just something I don't want to touch. From day one, everyone's an employee. As we go into rideshare, everyone's an employee. It's very simple. And that's the way we continue to do that. I think it's also, it allows us on the rideshare piece to actually have a really strong competitive advantage as well, Carl. Um, I think one thing that people don't understand on rideshare is that it's really hard from Uber and Lyft's perspective to run a marketplace when you control nothing. You don't control supply, you don't control demand, you don't control drivers, you don't control cars, you, you don't control anything. And I think there's this mantra within everyone's head of that is the only way to run rideshare. No, it's actually a pretty, uh, it's not an efficient way to run rideshares at all. Being able to control supply, control your fleet, dispatch your fleet, know when demand is happening, you control the driver, you tell the driver exactly where to go. that is actually a really efficient way to run the supply side of the market. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, yes, any incremental increase in cost on the driver wage side can be offset by simply running a much more efficient operation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I hear you. I I personally, you know, we can trash talk Uber and Lyft a little bit uh, together. I'm, I suppose we I. I I mean, obviously they were pioneers, but I I still don't quite get it. Uh, what it is that's a competitive advantage? There are no switching costs. You, I mean, it's, it's tough to build. It's definitely tough to, tough to build the system, the dispatching system, and, and so forth. But it isn't clear what the real barrier is there. And and today, no one's made any money. Am I right about that? No one's made any money in this in this space. And so, uh, I think you're totally just- right. Yeah,
1: Carl, just to push back on that a second, because I think it's important, especially for those listening, people group rideshare into one giant business. Mm. It's not. There's New York, there's San Francisco, there's London, which are highly revenue-generating, highly profitable. I say put a ton of cash into Uber and Lyft's account. It's simply Uber operates in 9,990 other cities that are in San Francisco, New York, and London. So the way Revel thinks about this world is, I'm only in the five largest North American cities, five largest European cities. Those are the only cities we care about. But they're also massive markets and are highly profitable and have rational pricing. So it's just the profitability question on rideshare. Yes, when you lump every small town and market together, where you can take a 28-minute ride for 8 bucks, whereas in New York, a 28-minute ride can
0: be $35. It's a very different economic model. Yeah, so let's let's go a little deeper on the scaling question. I noticed you're currently in Miami, New York, D.C., and San Francisco, and I believe you you attempted Austin, and and maybe you can say a little bit about where that went. But um, I suppose the argument that Uber and Lyft would make is that is that there's a certain brand stickiness uh, among customers who operate in more than one city. I know certainly if I go to, to Paris, I'm pulling out the Uber app. I, there's probably a Paris app, uh, a French app as well, but I'm I'm using Uber. But I guess the question is how many, how many of your customers are like that? And is that significant? So maybe say a little bit about whether you think there are network effects that span geography and how you think about the question of expansion, where to expand uh, and how.
1: So when it comes to network effects, it'd be really hard for me to sit here and tell everyone on this podcast that there's absolutely no network effects in transportation. What I will say is this is not a social media company, right? Transportation is highly local. It's a very different market from a Facebook type company, right? And that's the reason why certain cities in the US Lyft dominates, certain cities in the US Uber dominates, certain countries that Uber and Lyft operate in, other foreign rideshare type companies dominate those markets. Because it is a hyper-local, yes, there are some network events if you are doing some business travel in Paris and you're in London or somewhere else. But I would say the vast majority of trips, being a hyper-local brand, understanding the local market dynamics uh, can actually be quite positive.
0: Yeah. So there, let's not confuse our listeners. There is absolutely a minimum efficient scale that you need to operate in a single ge- geography. But what right. we're really saying is they're not They're not cross geographic, not large cross geographic effects. Yeah. All right. So what happened in in Austin?
1: Austin for us was uh, a couple of factors. Anyone that's been in Austin in the last year or two knows that there are seven e-bike companies, eight kick scooter companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it, it was just overwhelming. I think there were more two-wheeled electric vehicles on the sidewalks of Austin, like 5X the amount of population. (laughs) So I think just from a market regulatory perspective, it wasn't for us. There was really market regulation. Yes, there were moped permits. there were e-bike permits and kick scooter permits, but they pretty much gave them out to anybody. So I think just from a competitive dynamic, it, it wasn't for us. I think the other thing that we've learned as we've scaled, Carl, is focusing on the densest, most populous markets. So Austin, when we were going into Austin, if you were to Google Austin, it would say the population is a million people. If you to just plug into Google, the population of our operating area, sort of the Austin that Carl or myself would go visit if we went to Austin is more like 150,000 people. Yeah, So it's just a really small market that's actually not that dense and becomes suburbia quite quick. So it just from a market dynamic of population density, geography, plus the competitive pressures, we just said, you know what, these mopeds will do a lot more for us in other markets.
0: Yeah, you know, um, I think we want to underscore this point as well. So the the lesson here, if I were discerning it for my MBA students, would be really understand it at another level of detail where there are network effects and where there aren't and where there are there's minimum efficient scale or critical mass and where there isn't. And if you can get away with it, you're always better off cherry picking. The, the biggest, most profitable markets first in these with these kinds of businesses. So that's, I think, a super smart uh, insight and one I wanna wanna underscore. Okay, let me change subject just a little bit. So, but it's it, it's it, interesting though, Carl,
1: because I've gotten feedback of the opposite as we built this business uh, back in 2018, 2019. Hey, don't start in New York. Start in Tampa. Start in a, a market which won't give you many headaches and start somewhere
0: small. And I'm so glad I did not take that advice. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think both could be true. Yeah. I think you could say the the first the first mark. I mean, you 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 started in Brooklyn. You didn't say you started in in the five boroughs, right? So so I, I think I think both could be true. Where you want to get your feet wet is in a, something that's bounded. You got limited capital. You don't even know if it, it's going to work. But then as you think about the first significant operation, pick something that's going to be profitable. I think that, that's maybe the amended advice, which is good. But if, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm a professor at the Wharton School, and I'm speaking with Frank Rieg, who is co founder and CEO at Revel. Um, all right, Frank. So, if anyone was listening in the last 15 minutes to us go deep on, on the future of ledger mobility, uh, network effects, you know, we, we, we would immediately conclude that, uh, you know, that your background must, must be, uh, uh, technology-based, based businesses and maybe with a PhD in electrical engineering on the, on the side. Um, but as I read your bio, you, you obviously have the perfect background. You started your career as a chef. So maybe talk a little bit about, about your background, which I think is fascinating.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the only common thread in my background is I just always did what I wanted to do. Hey, um, that's good think, advice. <laughs> Let's pause on it, that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that is a trait maybe other entrepreneurs share as well. Uh, we never take the, the common path taken. Um, so after my undergraduate years, it's, it's true. I, I ended up working in high-end New York city restaurants for about four years so working as a chef in kitchens like gramercy tavern the daniel Boulud restaurant empire worked for uh, that group for a while I, I would say the one thing it did teach me carl was just sense of urgency hustle hard work um a kitchen is like no other environment it's kind of like the military you're just having a lot more fun
0: yeah well i let me just let me just underscore that point first of all i worked i worked in restaurants as a teenager uh and Oh my God, you learn, you learn to work fast and work smart, uh, and deal with tough, tough conditions. And, and I've hired uh, a couple of chefs in my, in my professional life, for, former chefs, chefs make great entrepreneurs for exactly the reasons you, you, you said, yeah, you can, they just get shit done. So it's, it's really, it's really great to have, to have chefs. Um, but then, but then you, you then made somewhat of a career transition. So, so keep going with the story. Yeah.
1: You know, there was a point about three, four years in, I was thinking I wanted to get into government and politics. That's where just where, where my head went. Um, so I ended up applying for a one-year master's program in public policy. So I ended up going to Columbia to do that degree. I used that to transition to a government position at the World Trade Center Redevelopment Office. This was 2013, 2014 period. And I think there couldn't have been a better government position for me coming out of graduate school. The reason why I say that was 2013, 2014, that was when the World Trade Center site was going from construction to now operating. We actually have tenants. We actually need to run this site. What is going on? What are the processes? Uh, you know, Literally, the governors of New York and New Jersey would call my boss once a week to yell them about something because there is a lot of political spotlight on that site. So I think what it taught me was just how the sausage is made between politics, regulatory, private business, uh, in real life, front row seat. And I think that informed a lot about how Rebel does our regulatory strategy moving forward, honestly. Uh, that education there. Um, ended up through a recruiter call, just continuing the story here. Um, ended up working at a company called GLG, Gerson Learning Group, in their energy investment research division. Uh, ended up leading that division by the time I left. Um, and really, it was a front row seat to the energy transition, oil and gas, the future of utilities. My team would do an investor call once a month on Tesla. So again, I did another sort of career transition into that position, specifically within energy world.
0: But you know, um, I'll pause you on that because I, I don't I don't know GLG super well, but it, it looks to me that it's it's exactly the opposite of being a chef. You don't really do anything. You're a You're a, you're a policy wonk expert and being experts and have opinions on things. You don't really actually do anything. And so uh, uh, I, I guess I, I would have guessed it would be a tough transition from that kind of job to convincing investors to let you go build uh, a startup, uh, say say, what, am I right about that, or did being a chef really mitigate that reception? No,
1: I I think my background, it's not it either gets investors excited or they don't understand it, and maybe they get scared. Yeah. And I think it depends on the personality of the person. So I've literally had venture capitalists tell me at the end of the meeting, um, you know, it's interesting, I like you, but you don't really have the pedigree really say that to my face. Yeah. <laughs> um, like what? Uh, okay. W- what about the business idea and what we've executed to date? Does any of that matter? Um, so you know, anyone listening to this call, if you don't quote unquote have the pedigree, you'll get comments like that as well, but that's okay. Um, you just move on because you're going to find the right people that just want to invest in the right entrepreneur that see the
0: hustle and the execution to date and we'll back you. Yeah, so so let's let's uh, follow that thread on fundraising a little bit. So the first round of fundraising was brutal. Fifty-seven individual checks. I know how brutal that is because I've done similar things, although not 57. Um, the second round, it sounds like that actually went reasonably well. You raised four million dollars in that same year later in in, in 2018. Uh, and then and then, just before the pandemic, you raised almost 30, $30 million in a Series A. So talk a little bit about how raising capital changed and why why the why the situation really changed.
1: Yeah. In the angel round, that first million, 57 different investors, that's people putting a check in to back you, right? And your co-founder, and you can have a PowerPoint deck and say whatever you want to say, but at the end of the day, they're backing you. As you go into the seed round, where we raised a four million dollar round, which need Mobility led out of Tel Aviv, um, then you start just obviously need to show metrics, some sort of proof point, which we did. We put the mopeds down on the streets; people started to ride them. Listen, guys, yeah. we just need capital to expand this. This is working. Um, and you know, our experience during the seed round that was frustrating, though, too, Carl, because at that point, any investor that looked at us said, "You're not doing kick scooters." Um, because that was the kick scooter mania yeah it was almost like if it was almost like nobody knew any other type of vehicle existed in the world except kick scooters in that summer of 2018 it was not so when we came with mopeds we just got a lot of people looking at us a little oddly and then i remember at one point i said you know what i think the problem is even though we've talked to literally every seed state vc in new york at this point we're talking to people that don't understand mobility we're just not talking to the right people. So I literally got home one day, super frustrated, and Googled top mobility VC. And some random article came up with the top 10 firms. And one of those was Manivh. And I just went through that list and I said, I need to reach out to all 10 of these. Ended up pulled outreach to Manivh through their website. Led to a call the next week. Led to a term sheet the week after.
0: Well, OK. So wait, wait, wait. I, I have never heard that kind of story before, where a cold email off a website led, led to a t- term sheet. So that's great. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. It goes back to
1: the sense of hustle piece, right? Of being yeah. a chef, of just bringing that background, you just get it done. So to me, yes, of course, warm intro is always the best. But if not, you do a cold intro. It doesn't matter. You just yeah. do as much as you can. That yeah. cold intro led to a quick call with one of their analysts. He said, hey, listen, partner's literally in New York tomorrow. I like you. Meet him at a coffee shop. Met him, spent an hour with him. Then the next day they said, you know what? The whole team's in Miami for some event on Friday. We'll fly you to Miami. I want you to meet the whole team. Okay, flew to Miami. Term sheet literally 48 hours later. Wow. So that Amazing. was, um, and series A happened almost as quickly from the lead check. So I think my advice to some people as well is the ones that just drag you on forever, Yeah, probably not going to invest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's either a quick yes or don't waste your time. This way, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think we have time for just a la- the last question, which is the topical question. Um, so you you closed, thankfully, you closed your 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 A round, thirty million bucks, uh, about four months before COVID hit. Um, COVID, it, I was a little surprised, San Francisco. COVID just shut down personal mobility. They all got yanked off the streets. There was no uh, personal mobility, which seemed a little strange to me, but that's what happened. Uh, Net-net, what did it do for you guys?
1: I would say the last 16, 17 months have been the hardest 16, 17 months of definitely my career. There's no question. Wow. Anyone that's operating a consumer mobility business during the first COVID lockdown, whether you're Uber, I mean, live went bankrupt, right? They had to be bought out by Uber. Many others uh, left the market because literally, Carl, in the first COVID lockdown last spring, everyone's revenue went to near zero. It just did. People just stopped moving. I don't care what city you're in. Uh, And whether it was cars, mopeds, bikes, it doesn't matter. Revenue went to near zero for 10, 12 weeks. Um, What we experienced after that was then just a switch flipped on and demand went the opposite way. Which also brings its own problems dealing with that. You go from right. a, an area where you're dealing with layoffs to now an area where you can't hire quick enough and to yeah. train quick enough. Um, and then you go back into COVID lockdown number two, which happened this past winter. Right? You sort of demand flies. You know, demand um, heads up into the right over the summer, and then guess what? You're back in November, December, and it's back down to near zero again as cities go back into lockdown. What we're seeing coming out of this second lockdown, starting in April, is more of a gradual increase in demand. So it's not like last summer, where was yeah. everyone was trapped for 12 weeks and then sort of just all hit the streets at once and nobody took public transit. Now it's just a nice gradual uptick in demand, which is actually good for us. It allows us to operationally deal with that instead of a switch going off. And I expect that to continue. I think cities are gonna to continue to recover um, ever so slightly as more and more people eventually go to the office, especially this fall. But that's sort of what we experienced the last 16 months. It was not easy.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Frank, rem- remarkably, we time. Super interesting. Obviously, I love this uh, stuff. So uh, tell our listeners how they can follow you, where they can where they can learn more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, obviously, we're in the app
1: stores. Uh, just uh, search Rebel. will come right up. In terms of our website, it is gorebel.com. Um, and we are located in San Francisco, DC, Miami,
0: and New York City. All right, Frank, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks, Carl. All right, that does it for our show. If you wanna follow us, you can follow us on the SiriusXM app or on Twitter at SXM Business. You can follow me on Twitter at KT Ulrich. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And you've been listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.